AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored for your business needs. Specializing in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. To elevate your business, visit ajproducts.ie. Dennis, you've been over in China writing for the Irish Times for a while now. So I want to ask, how much does the average person you meet in China know about Ireland? Like if I was asked about China, I might say the Great Wall, Chinese food, manufacturing, communism. What would a Chinese person on the street say about Ireland or would they have even heard of Ireland as a country? A lot of them have heard of it and know something about it. So they would they would know of Ireland as a, as a beautiful place with lots of fresh water and green the image of, of Ireland as a, you know, in terms of its natural beauty. Riverdance was a very big success in China. It was actually the first commercial performance in the Great Hall of the People was Riverdance. No way. So that's very big. Shanghai, how are we feeling tonight? Irish boy bands like Westlife. Everybody know the song, what makes a man? Boyzone, all of these are very big. Okay. Uh, Irish music in general. There, I was talking to somebody there the other day who was uh, telling me about various Chinese bands that play Irish-influenced music, like music like the Pogues, that kind of stuff. So there is a certain knowledge about it, but it's pretty vague. But I suppose in a way that, as you say, Irish people would have a kind of a vague notion of some big picture things about China, but they might know, you know, uh, where is Yunnan province? You know, they wouldn't necessarily know all that much detail about it. Mm-hmm. Most Chinese people may not know much about Ireland beyond Westlife or Riverdance, but the Chinese state is interested in Ireland. The recent visit of Premier Li Chiang is evidence of that. China's second most powerful politician is due to meet the Taoiseach and President Michael D. Higgins. But what is it about Ireland that China is interested in? And what does that tell us about how China views the world and its own place in it? It's not so much that China imagines that Ireland is in some way on China's side in any kind of great global conflict, but just that maybe it's more perhaps understanding of what it's like to be a non-Western country. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Sarah Khapalak. Today, how China sees Ireland and the West. I talked to Beijing correspondent Dennis Stoughton. Dennis, a couple of weeks ago, the Chinese Premier Li Chiang visited Ireland. What brought such a powerful man to our little island? It's a good question. He was in Davos, and that was really only his third visit outside China since he became Premier last year. He went to France and Germany last year, which you'd kind of expect. And then he added on a visit to Dublin. And what the Chinese say is it's the 45th anniversary of bilateral relations, diplomatic relations between Ireland and China, Mm. and something to be marked. They see Ireland as being a a country with an interesting economic history over the last 40 years, and they feel as if there are certain things that they can learn from the Irish economic experience. So, in a sense, that's kind of the official answer is all of that. Mm -hmm. I think beyond that... There are other reasons why China is interested in Ireland. One of them is that if you look at the European Union, uh, 
and there's a kind of a spectrum of opinion within the European Union with regard to China. At one end of it, you would have Lithuania, which was basically sanctioned by China over the last couple of years because they uh, had overstepped the mark, as China saw it, in terms of their relations with Taiwan. And then at the far end of the spectrum, you would have Hungary, which is almost an ally of China. And uh, so, so where Ireland is, they would see Ireland as being on the kind of friendlier end without being at the quite at the Hungarian end. It's worth mentioning we did get something out of their visit, didn't we? Like there were announcements on visas and on beef exports as well, right? Yeah, so what they did was that uh, Li Chang announced, first of all, that from now on, Irish people will be able to visit China for up to 15 days without a visa for tourism, for business, for whatever it is. And that means that we now join a number of countries. They In December, they gave this visa-free access to Germany, France, the Netherlands, one or two other European countries. So that's a boost in terms of it making it easier for Irish people to go to China and to do business there. It's not reciprocal. It's a unilateral thing. They just gave it to us. We don't have to give it to them. And then in a way more remarkable was what they did with the beef. Irish beef had uh, been sold in China up until a few years ago. And then there was a case of BSE in Ireland. And so uh, automatically beef imports from Ireland stopped. Mm -hmm. And so they had to go through a whole process of certifying that everything was okay, the Irish authorities and then the Chinese authorities. And then just last year, the beef came back in. But late last year, there was another case Mm -hmm. of an atypical case of BSE. And so Ireland automatically stopped sending the, uh, the beef exports to China and started its own investigation. And normally what happens is the Irish send the results of their investigation to China. China then goes through its own investigation and then decides to let them in or not. Mm. This process takes months and months and months. What the Chinese did was they said, OK, we just accept your version. So Ireland says this beef is OK and we accept your authorization and it is now allowed back into China. And interestingly, in the Chinese news reports of the visit, that wasn't mentioned. Interesting. Do we know why they were so willing to accept our meat so quickly? Is that clear at all? No, I think that it was, first of all, they think that it's probably true that the Irish beef industry and the Irish government doesn't have an interest in certifying something as being safe if it's not safe. And this was an atypical case. So the outcome was going to be the same. But by circumventing this, it just, it was a friendly gesture and it meant something to Ireland because what it means is that now that Irish beef is back on the market in China, Ireland is also trying to open up the Korean market for its beef exports. And it was a problem. The Koreans weren't going to allow it in if it was still banned in mm. China. So, uh, so that's going to help in other ways. Okay. During Li Chang's visit, did the Irish government raise China's human rights record? And if they did, How did they bring it up? Yes, they did and they always do. The main human rights issues that are raised uh, by the Europeans generally and the Irish specifically would be the treatment of the Uyghur minority in Xinjiang province. And over the last decade or so, in response to uh, a number of incidents, including a mass stabbing attack in 2014 at a railway station, which killed 31 people, the Chinese had a very, very heavy crackdown on what they saw as this uh, separatism and Islamic extremism. And they instituted a program of re-education. They would say it's a bit like the Prevent program in Britain. In fact, it's much harsher than that. Mass repression, really. And 
there have been a number of reports on this by human rights organizations, but also most prominently by Michelle Bachelet, who was the uh, former uh, UN Human Rights Commissioner, and she produced a report just as she left office where she detailed some of this. The Chinese uh, reject her findings, but most countries in the world think that she probably got it uh, pretty well right. So that's one that's raised. Another one is the crackdown on democracy in Hong Kong and the, the national security law which uh, has seen hundreds of people uh, arrested. And then the third issue, it tends to be about Tibet. And that's an ongoing thing about the suppression of Tibetan identity. And then the fourth is just the treatment of human rights activists and defenders throughout mainland China. The time actually that it was that they had the longest conversation about it was last year when Michal Martin, as foreign minister, went to Beijing and he had a very long meeting with Wang Yi, who's the Chinese foreign minister. And Wang asked him to raise whatever he wanted. And so the Chinese, uh, you know, it's, it's not exactly as people imagine it. They don't mind people raising human rights uh, issues because they will just argue that they're right. First of all, they'll say, uh, you know, if you're talking about what's happening in Xinjiang with the Uyghur minority, mm -hmm. sometimes they say it's not true. Other times they'll say there's a different context to it. They will defend what they've done in terms of the national security law in Hong Kong. So that you know, so they tend to, to now, it's a change really over the last while, they're now quite happy to give a robust defense of their human rights record, sometimes disputing the facts and sometimes just disputing the sense of it all. It's uh, an internal matter for China and bought out, basically. We heard earlier about what the average Chinese person might know about Ireland, like Riverdance, for example. But on a political level, Ireland seems to mean something more complex to China. And that's something you've been writing about, Dennis, and something I wanted to talk to you about today. From China's viewpoint, the European Union is seen as becoming more unfriendly towards China, but Ireland is seen as one of the bright points. So first of all, why is the EU seen as more unfriendly in China and why is Ireland viewed differently? Well, for a long time, China in its approach to the European Union, it sort of intellectually Chinese diplomats understood how the European Union worked, but kind of instinctively they didn't. So they couldn't quite grasp why if you have France and Germany agreeing with you, could a little country like Lithuania or a handful of MEPs cause such problems? Mm -hmm. And they found that very frustrating. What they've now started to realize is that there are various debates going on in Europe, for example, about this concept of de-risking. And the idea is that you don't want the European economy to be too dependent on China for certain things. So, they, for example, during the COVID pandemic, mm. they discovered that Europe generally couldn't produce all of the PPE that they needed, all of these protective garments, mm. whatever. And so they've, they've sort of identified various things that they want to make sure that the supply chain chains are secure. That's what they say. But it's also kind of uh, linked in with an American approach, which is that they're banning the export of some high technology uh, semiconductors to China. And uh, so there's a kind of a mixture of kind of protectionism of uh, the Europeans saying that uh, you know China is about to flood the European market with its electric cars on the one hand. And then these export restrictions, we're not going to send technology to China because they might use it for the military or whatever it is. And that's American-influenced. So what China has realized is that all of this is going to be a debate within the European Union. Mm. And that within the European Union, there's a spectrum of views. So, for example, if you are Germany and you've got a big car industry, 
you're certainly going to be quite keen on protecting that from cheap imports of good electric vehicles from China. Mm. Uh, In the same way, solar panels, electric batteries, something like that. Whereas if you're a country like Ireland, which is not producing any of that stuff and which is an open economy, where an awful lot of our economic model depends on the idea of globalization and of free trade, you might find that you're on that sort of end of the spectrum that you're saying, well, okay, we accept the need for some of this de-risking, but let's go light on it. And so some countries are saying, let's go easy. Others are saying, let's go harder. Mm -hmm. And so I think that where China sees Ireland as a country that might, although it goes with the European mainstream, that it might be a voice of moderation when it comes to some of this, what the Chinese would see as protection and stuff. That's the economic relationship. There's also a military dimension. Uh, One commentator on Chiang's visit was quoted in a Chinese media outlet as saying, quote, as one of the very few neutral countries in the EU, Ireland has maintained very sound and stable relations with China, end quote. Dennis, can you explain, though, how that is an advantage? It's not as though China is at war with any EU country or likely to be so anytime soon, right? No, but I think that NATO has become beyond simply what it started off as, as being a kind of a defensive alliance against uh, the Soviet Union Mm. in the post-war period. And so it has become more of a kind of a global military representation of the the Western powers. And so, uh, you know, the fact that Ireland is, although politically certainly part of the collective West, the fact that Ireland is not part of that military alliance is something which it actually is, it goes down well in a lot of countries in the global south. And it's not so much that China imagines that Ireland is in some way on China's side in any kind of great global conflict, but just that maybe that as a former colony that is not part of the Western military alliance, that it is more open to conversations, that it's more perhaps understanding of what it's like to be a non-Western country. Mm. The fact that Ireland has this long tradition, partly through religious missionaries, but also partly just simply through our experience of having been a colony, of connecting with parts of the global south in Africa, in Asia, and Latin America. It does mean, the fact is that, you know, if you are in Europe, NATO is regarded as being a kind of the sword and shield of Western liberal values. Outside of the collective West, NATO is seen as something aggressive. It's seen as part, as as essentially the, the sharp end of the spear of Western imperialism and also of Western arrogance. And we're not just talking about China, but if you speak to people in South Africa, people in Latin America, they will all tell you the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, Ireland's neutrality, while it doesn't mean that much in lots of ways. It's it's a plus. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not a minus. Mm-hmm. So Ireland could be a voice against economic protectionism or militarism, and that's good for China, and presumably it's good for our relationship with China. But presumably other EU states are wary of China, and for good reason, including the fact that China uses its economic power aggressively in a way that could harm European economic interests, and because it supports Russian President Vladimir Putin in the war on Ukraine. Should Ireland not be wary of such a country too? 
I think on the economic stuff, there's no question but that the European Union has a very valid case to make when it says that its companies do not operate on a level playing field in China and that China creates all kinds of barriers uh, to European companies having really equal access to its market. So I think there's no doubt about uh, – and it's also true that China uses its economic power uh, to influence countries around the world. It's not the only country in the world to do that. The United mm -hmm. States does that as well. I think uh, you know, when it comes to Ukraine, what China would say is that they're neutral with Ukraine. But there's no question but that they have offered diplomatic support to Vladimir Putin. They don't accept the, uh, the American and European sanctions. They don't believe in what they call unilateral sanctions. They think that sanctions should be imposed by the United Nations, mm -hmm. not by individual countries or groups of countries. And so they, uh, you know, they, they draw the line, for example. So there's a limit to what they will do for Russia. They haven't given them any military aid. Mm. They've been very careful about that. And they also, uh, you know, although they don't follow along with the, uh, with the Western sanctions, they also don't really breach them mm -hmm. uh, to any extent. So, so they're kind of, you know, they're playing a kind of a, a, a delicate game. But where there's no question but it's true is that when the Europeans go to Beijing and they say, you must join us in uh, this existential fight against uh, Vladimir Putin and what he has done in Ukraine, the Chinese are not impressed because the Europeans and the Americans, as far as they're concerned, are quite ready to ignore their own rules-based international order whenever it suits them. Mm. And this is not the first war of aggression that has happened. But like much of the global south, uh, what the Chinese see is the uh, Americans and the Europeans getting very, very worked up about something that's happening on their patch in a way that they really were were fairly indifferent towards an awful lot of struggles, an awful lot of uh, oppression that's happened elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where they would see a kind of double standard. Coming up, understanding China's position on the wars in Ukraine and Gaza. I continue my conversation with Dennis Staunton. At AJ Products, we're dedicated to delivering intelligent solutions tailored exclusively for your business needs, spanning offices, warehouses, industries, workshops, schools and public spaces. Specialising in warehouse and project planning, we bring efficiency and sustainability to the forefront. Our offerings include versatile storage solutions and comprehensive office project design and implementation. With over 45 years of experience, we stand as your trusted partner in smart B2B solutions. To explore all we have to offer, visit ajproducts.ie and elevate your business with AJ Products. There are two conflicts we're hearing a lot about in Europe right now. The war in Ukraine, which we've just spoken about, and also obviously the war in Gaza. The Irish state has taken stances on both. We support Ukraine and we've clearly called on Russia to withdraw. In Gaza, we offer qualified support to Israel's war on Hamas, but we are opposed to the scale of Israel's actions and we've called for a ceasefire. Can you outline China's position on these conflicts in similarly simple terms? So on Ukraine, the Chinese position officially is that it is neutral, but the fact is that it has offered some diplomatic support to Russia and China wants uh, peace talks without preconditions mm. uh, to resolve that conflict. Where Gaza is concerned, China supports 
Palestinian statehood. Mm -hmm. uh, it wants an immediate ceasefire and it wants talks towards a two-state solution and it says that the only resolution to this conflict is a two-state solution with a viable independent Palestinian state. The Chinese, along with uh, many other countries in the global south, see a double standard where uh, the Western powers are concerned, where the Western powers uh, denounce war crimes when they're committed by the Russians, but appear to indulge them when they're committed by their ally in Israel. And so, uh, you know, having said all of that, China would like all of these conflicts to end. China's main interest is in global stability, and that's partly for selfish reasons. It wants the economy, the global economy, to recover. It wants the because that means the market for Chinese goods recovers, and so for China, a period of stability would be ideal. So they don't actually have an interest in any of these wars continuing. It doesn't suit their purposes, even if it ends up weakening the West in the longer term. Mm -hmm. So, Dennis, does China see an opportunity to lead the global south, given what you've been saying about how the West is viewed negatively often in other parts of the world? China would see itself as a leader of the global south. It, uh, it has a number of forums where it uh, works with other members of the global south. The BRICS being the most obvious, which was originally Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South America. It's now expanded to include uh, a number of other countries, including Iran, Saudi Arabia, and various others. And so that's one where this group of countries who disagree on lots of different things, but they're all not part of the collective West, and they would like the global order, to the rules to change, so that, for example, the makeup of the Security Council of the uh, United Nations, which reflects the situation in the world after the end of the Second World War, but before decolonization in the 60s. They want that changed. Voting rights in uh, organizations like the International Monetary Fund to change to reflect basically the way the world has changed. And so through forums like that, and also through its own Belt and Road Initiative, a kind of a, an economic and infrastructure network, and also through the United Nations, it's trying to achieve a leadership role. One way they're trying to do that is by being a fairly undemanding friend. So one of the differences between the uh, great power rivalry today and, say, in the 20th century is that if you look at the rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union, it was ideological. They were in competition ideologically and they wanted to spread their various ideas, Western capitalism and uh, Soviet socialism. Whereas China has no interest in spreading uh, Chinese communism or Xi Jinping thought or anything like that. They don't care uh, if we're democracies or not, as long as we leave each other alone and don't interfere in their internal affairs and that we allow the world to operate in a way that suits their, their purposes. So it's non-ideological. And that, of course, suits uh, a lot of countries. So if, for example, you're Saudi Arabia, you're not going to complain about... China's human rights record, and, so, and China's not going to complain about the Saudis' human rights record. And they just, you know, uh, they disagree, uh, they're completely different systems, but they can do business together. And that, as far as both the Saudis and the Chinese, is, is good news. Fitting unevenly into all of this is the US presidential election this year, which could see the return of Donald Trump to the White House. Does China have a strategic preference in that election? If you talk to them, they will say... It doesn't matter. They would say that initially, uh, when Donald Trump came into power, he had a very aggressive uh, policy towards China, imposing tariffs and being very hawkish. And they thought that when Biden came in, 
that he'd be better for them. In fact, Biden continued really pretty hawkish policies and the relationship has been very, very rocky. It improved in late uh, 2023 when uh, Xi Jinping and Joe Biden met in San Francisco. And at the moment, we're going through a period where it seems to be improving. But at the same time, you know, so what the Chinese will say is, is really, there's, it makes no difference. But in fact, they're sort of biding their time and waiting to see. And I suppose what they think is that uh, Trump is highly unpredictable. But at the same time, he may be transactional and it might be possible to do a deal. He's already talked about the idea of, uh, you know, ending wars immediately, of in a way indicating he might be prepared to do some kind of deal over Taiwan, has been speaking in a kind of disobliging way about Taiwan taking America's semiconductor industry. And so some of that might be encouraging to the Chinese, but at the same time, he is so capricious and unpredictable that that, that is quite a risky option for them. That's all for today. For more reporting from Dennis Staunton in China, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Sarah Hapollock. Today's episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow.